Chapter Twenty One of the Fall River Tragedy by Edwin H. Porter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty One The Tricky McHenry Affair. The history of the Borden murder would be incomplete without reference to the affair in which Henry G. Tricky, the talented reporter of the Boston Globe, and Detective Edwin D. McHenry figured so prominently. They were not alone in the deal which resulted in the Boston Globe publishing on the 12th of October, 1892, a story which has since become famous as the most gigantic fake ever laid before the reading public. A dozen people, a majority of whom rank high in the estimation of the public, were directly connected with this matter, and while the writer of this book would be justified in giving each and every man's connection therewith, circumstances have arisen which would seem to indicate that by the publication of these names an unfortunate occurrence would be stirred into action again and perhaps no particular good would result so delicate in fact has the matter become that no newspaper has attempted to publish anything more than an occasional reference to it although more than one great daily is in possession of the main facts it is a delicate matter because it has many sides to be presented and each participant maintains that he was right in his actions and that the others were wrong. After hearing this story from many sources, each of which is apparently authentic, it becomes more confusing and treacherous. There are some things, however, upon which all parties agree, and they will be discussed in this chapter. Henry G. Tricky bargained with Detective McHenry for an exclusive story of the Borden case, and the price to be paid was $500, according to Mr. Tricky. The story was delivered, paid for, and published in the Boston Globe. It was false in every particular, and the Globe discovered its mistake ten hours after it had been made. Mr. Tricky left Boston soon afterward, and was accidentally killed by a railroad train in Canada in the latter part of November. His friends insisted that he was unjustly dealt with by McHenry, and that his death was the indirect result of the transaction. They claim also that he represented a great newspaper, and that his efforts in getting the story for publication were honest, praiseworthy, and done in a manner which is to be expected of the live newspaper man of the day. But the state represented in this matter by McHenry makes a different claim, and it submitted evidence to the grand jury whereby Mr. Tricky was indicted for his connection with the affair. Had the unfortunate Mr. Tricky lived to meet his accusers, the result would no doubt have been as interesting and quite as sensational as the killing of the Bordens. As the Fall River Police, in connection with McHenry, secured the evidence upon which Mr. Tricky was indicted, it is but natural to expect that they had reasons for doing so. To offset this, the friends of the reporter claim he was the victim of a plot of which McHenry was the moving spirit, and they shoulder most of the blame on the detective. He, however, appears to be able to bear the burden, as Marshal Hilliard has repeatedly said that he found McHenry a capable, reliable, and trustworthy officer, so far as his connection with him had been. Thus it will be seen that if Mr. Tricky was innocent of the charges preferred against him, he was at a disadvantage, for the Fall River Police, as well as the District Attorney and the Attorney General, were kept thoroughly posted on what was taking place between the reporter and the detective. In order that both sides may be presented to the public the story of the transaction as told by McHenry, as well as that of Tricky, is given and can be taken for what it is worth. 
the detective has been unmercifully criticised by almost every newspaper in the country. Perhaps he deserved it richly, and perhaps he did not. The following is his statement made to the writer. He said, I was in New York the day of the Borden murders and left that night for Fall River. Upon arriving on Friday morning, I, in company with State Officer Seaver, went to the Borden house to make a survey of the premises. This trip I took upon my own responsibility, as it were, prompted merely by a desire to look over the ground where so terrible a tragedy had been enacted. While in the yard I learned the story of the man who was said to have jumped over the back fence, and out of curiosity searched that part of the premises for a trace which the escaping man might have left. I was engaged in this work about three hours. I talked with John Cunningham, who was the first man on the premises, and from him learned that the back cellar door was locked when he made an effort to open it shortly after the murders were reported. I then went to the door and counted eleven weekly cobwebs, that is, cobwebs which had been in place a week or more. Assistant Marshal Fleet and I opened the door and concluded that no one had passed through it for a week at least. We then went to the barn and made further search. We were told that the place had been locked. After that we made a search of the Changnyum fence, and I measured it and took other observations. From the house I went to the city marshal's office and there met Mr. Hilliard and Mayor Coughlin. The two men were discussing the case. It was then that the marshal employed me on the case, and the mayor authorised his action. I was engaged in various work until Saturday afternoon, or evening, when the marshal said to me, Mr. McHenry, I understand that there is a Pinkerton man in the city. I want you to take care of him. The mayor was also present at this interview, and gave his sanction to the order. I learned afterward that the marshal referred to the fact that Assistant Superintendent O. M. Hanscom of the Boston Agency was in the city, and believed that he was in the employ of Attorney Jennings and the Borden family. But the same night I found Mr. Hanscom, and watched him according to orders. It happened that the Marshal, Officer Seaver, and myself were at the Marshal's residence during the early part of the night, in consultation on the case. Mr. Hilliard was at supper, and I took occasion to go out and look around the premises. As I did so, I saw two Pinkerton men at the back window, evidently in the act of eavesdropping. I very quickly told them to get out, as we did not want any such cattle around. I did not mention the incident to the marshal at the time, but later, as we walked up to the city, I informed him of what I had seen. He was naturally angry at the audacity of the men whom I had seen around his house. On the way to the police station we met Henry G. Trickey, and he immediately entered into conversation with the marshal. I heard Mr. Hilliard say, I am making no special mark of anybody in this investigation, but I do intend to probe this affair to the bottom, no matter who it hits. I want to convey this information to your friend. Outside detectives must not interfere with the work of my men. Right here, I want to state, by way of parenthesis, that I did not go to the post office in Providence and offer to sell the evidence in the Graves-Barnaby case to Mr. Trickey, although he said that I did. And the reason that I state that is that this very night, of which I am speaking, saw the beginning of the Trickey-McHenry affair, and it was but three nights after the Borden murders. It did not have its origin in me at all, as you will see as we progress. You will remember that yesterday I told you of an alleged truce which was said by the newspapers. 
in fact by mr trickey himself to have been patched up between us the fact is that three months before the bordens were murdered i in company with two friends were in the adams house boston when mr trickey came up we had not been on friendly terms as you know since the graves trial in denver and at that time we did shake hands and apparently the hatchet was buried in mr trickey's own statement of this affair which was printed over his signature in the boston globe of october the eleventh eighteen ninety two appears this sentence i went to providence to see about the lawyer's story now that was manifestly incorrect as you know yourself that the boston globe published the whole story ten days before and i know that mr trickey got it from state officer siva i merely mention this to show to you some of the glaring inconsistencies which are prominent in the story of the affair from which that sentence was read but that is not the point for discussion now on the night to which i referred a while ago which was the seventh of august mr trickey before meeting us as before stated had left superintendent hanscom across the street and mayor coughlin had joined the party which then consisted of marshal hilliard the mayor officer siever mr trickey and myself after a short conversation with the marshal mr trickey then turned to the mayor and commenced to abuse the attorney-general for his course in the then pending trefethen davis case mr trickey said hanscom has prevented the conviction of trefethen so far and he will lead pillsbury yet more than that he will prevent the fall river police from hanging lizzie borden this thread of conversation was kept up for a while and then mr trickey turning to me said just a minute ned i want to speak to you i stepped aside with him the mayor and officer siever walked along the marshal heeled up a few feet away then mr trickey delivered himself as follows ned you are a big chump if you don't throw that big clam digger meaning the marshal and deal to me there is just five thousand bobs in this job for us the marshal overheard this statement i replied what do you mean tricky then he said you know how i stood with hanscom in the graves matter don't you i just about own that pinkerton agency and the men do just about as i say in these matters now i am in a position to give you a chance to get square with the pinkertons and at the same time catch five thousand nice juicy bobs this was a tempting offer i must say for a poor man to hear made and i said well henry i will consider your proposition a while and see you again later hardly had the words been uttered than he grabbed me with both hands and at the same time spoke in a loud voice to the marshal who still remained near by saying i'll let mac go in a minute marshal i want to speak to him about a lady we knew in denver then lowering his voice he continued has lizzie borden got a lover can't i allege that she has in my story to-morrow morning i want something big to scoop this gang of newspaper fellows who are in the town my reply to this was great god henry no he talked on saying judging from what i heard to-day somebody is in love with lizzie no sir said i the utmost consideration is and has been shown to miss borden and i never heard that she had a lover the suggestion which mr trickey made then was used in the great story which he bought some months afterward and you can begin to see now perhaps why i was suspicious of the honesty of mr trickey's intentions he continued however saying i know a great deal more about this case than the fall river police and right here i want to give you a straight tip 
if you take it to Hilliard. It will give him a valuable clue to work on. If my friend Hanscom, on his return from the next interview with Lizzie Borden, is satisfied that she is guilty, he is going to pull up stakes and leave the town. This very statement Mr. Tricky made again in the police office the next day, in the presence of the marshal and others. So, said Mr. Tricky, if he leaves the town, you can jump Lizzie immediately. Then in parting from me, he said, don't forget to consider my proposition and connect with me tomorrow. Then I will square myself with you for the dirty deal I gave you in the Graves case. I would have smashed him in the nose right there had not the marshal been in hearing distance. I promised him to think the matter over and see him again. I walked up to the marshal and we entered my room at the Wilbur house. Then and there I related what I have just told you and also told of Mr. Tricky's conduct in the Graves case. Went through it all from end to end. The marshal said that he had overheard a part of the conversation and that Mr. Tricky was up to just what he suspected. The marshal said to me in the course of the talk, Ned, if this man is what he represents himself to be, in connection with these people, you watch him, and look to me personally for help. Take plenty of time and use good judgment. Have everything in black and white. As I stated to you before, I had told him of my connection with the Graves case, and I suggested the advisability of my keeping in the background and under cover as much as possible in the work before us. Dr. Graves was then under conviction of murder, and the Supreme Court had not passed upon his motion for a new trial. Until this was settled, I did not feel that I should be prominently mentioned in the Borden case, as there were many men, enemies to me, who would antagonize me at every step if they knew that I was a factor in the investigation. He told me to go ahead and follow these people to the end, and to spare no pains or expense to do the job well. Next morning I was given a great many anonymous letters which the marshal had read, and in company with Inspector Medley ran them down. That is, established a clue for work which was afterward carried out by Captains Harrington and Doherty. This was part of the work which I did for the police, and secrecy of it kept me in the background. I kept my eye on the movements of the people I have mentioned before, and at the end of the first month made out my bill to the city of Fall River. It was allowed by the Board of Aldermen, but the Fall River Herald, in an alleged editorial, severely criticised the marshal for allowing me to work on the case, and objected to me being paid for what I had done. I never rendered another bill to the city of Fall River, although I worked night and day for months. In view of the Herald's criticism, I concluded not to bring the editor's unjust ravings into the heads of my friends, and so ever after that I paid my own expenses. I spent every cent of money I could rake and scrape to carry out the work assigned to me, until my family were all but destitute. I gave up all my time to this work, and stood still under the fierce and unjust thrusts of every editorial pen, with few exceptions, in New England. It made me a poor man, and eventually brought on an attack of nervous prostration, when I fell exhausted, penniless, and perhaps friendless, in the streets of New York, and was carried into the Cosmopolitan Hotel, where I lay among perfect strangers while my wife and child fought alone the battle for life in Providence. Yes, I did this rather than have such learned men as the editor of the Fall River Herald spill his gall over the magnanimous sum of $106, which I claimed for work and expenses, while upholding in my humble way the dignity of, 
and straining every nerve to assist the Fall River police. I took a solemn vow that no act of Ned McHenry should ever again compromise my friends, Rufus B. Hilliard, and his honour, John W. Coughlin. Therefore I plodded through in silence. And where is my reward? A few dollars for six months' work of myself and wife, and half a dozen men whom I paid regularly. But I would not have you understand that I am complaining. Perhaps the city of Fall River will reimburse me when the end of the Borden murder case is reached. Now in regard to all this bosh about my attempting to rob and defame newspaper men as a rule, I refer you to the Boston Post of October the 11th, and there you will see how I saved a paper which has been friendly to me. You may ask the managing editor how I treated him and his men in this case, and I think it only fair that he give you an answer. At this point the writer asked Mr. McHenry if he furnished Mr. Trickey with a list of witnesses for the government. He replied, The only living evidence that I furnished Mr. Trickey with, with the names of living witnesses, is that I did tell him that I, my wife, and Bridget Sullivan were witnesses for the prosecution, and that he knew before I told him. I defy contradiction of this statement. Did you furnish him with that list of names which it is alleged that he showed the managing editor of the Globe, in order to convince him that the story which he had bought from you was true? Mr. McHenry answered, That list of names is in Mr. Trickey's own handwriting, and if you or anybody else want further evidence of the truth of this statement, examine the affidavits of those persons who were present when he wrote the list, and which are now locked up in the Attorney General's office, Commonwealth Building, Boston. Who made these affidavits? I asked, and he answered, Several persons, but all of them were not summoned to the grand jury to testify. For instance, there are two Providence policemen, two Providence lawyers, two of my men, and Captain Desmond of Fall River, who know about the case but were not called. All this documentary evidence against Mr. Trickey is in his own handwriting and laid away in the same place and marked Exhibit Number 1. I want to say here and now that Andrew J. Jennings has been clean and free in this whole business. In justice to the man, I do not believe that he did in any way give his sanction to the action of other friends of the accused woman. I say this through no fear of Mr. Jennings, but because he would not countenance any such actions as Tricky represented to have come from those friends. As to the story I furnished Mr. Tricky, he had the gist of it in his pockets three weeks before it was printed in the Globe. I gave him a skeleton of what the alleged witnesses would testify to, and he carried that around with him, I suppose. The Attorney General has the affidavits of eight witnesses to the transaction, all of whom heard what was said at the time I gave him the story. In an editorial of the Globe of October the 12th, this statement appears. Reports are examined at short notice, and sometimes under great hurry and excitement, etc. Now that was no excuse for printing the stuff I sold Mr. Tricky, for he had the skeleton of the story for three weeks at least, and if he had wanted it primarily for the Globe, there was no reason why he could not have examined it at his leisure. The editorial goes on to say the story was so well written, and on the face of it appeared to be so plausible, that it was used without attempt at verification. Now I never read stronger language than that, and I consider it a great compliment to me from the editor of the Boston Globe. After Mr. Trickey had made the proposition to buy the state's case from me, 
I lay in bed that day and thought the matter over, and formed some idea of the story which I would give out. That night Tricky came down, and he and I worked on the story, writing it out from the skeleton. He wrote, and I dictated. We were at it until three o'clock in the morning. This was on Thursday, before the Monday on which the story appeared in print. Mind you, I had not given the bogus witnesses' names to him until that night. In the skeleton there appeared no names. But the separate statement of each witness was numbered from one to twenty-five, and it read something like this. Witness number one will testify to so-and-so. Witness number two will testify to so-and-so. And in this manner through the whole list. That night I told him who the witnesses were, and he used their names instead of the numbers. After this was completed, he showed me a draft made out by a certain gentleman payable to me in the sum of $5,000. It was drawn on Andrew J. Jennings and was in payment for the government's case. That draft was never honoured. With it was a letter authorising the expenditure of any sum of money to get at the whole case of the prosecution. That letter was laid in a convenient place, and I got Tricky out of my office long enough to afford other people a chance to get a good look at it and to read it. I consider that movement a nice piece of detective work. During the evening, Captains Harrington and Desmond sat behind the curtain in my office and heard Mr. Tricky say to me that he had bribed them and that they had told him many of the state's secrets. Why Tricky went on so far as to accuse the mayor of the city of accepting a bribe and selling out to him the representative of the defence. At this point, the writer asked McHenry, how on earth did Mr. Tricky escape in the face of such accusations as this? McHenry replied at once, He never met his match before. Continuing, McHenry said, Tricky did agree in the hearing of the usual number of witnesses to give me twenty-four hours' notice before he published the story. In his published statement of October the 11th, he says I asked him two questions on the night of the 10th. This, mind you, was at the time of his first and last visit to my office, after the alleged evidence had been published. The first question he quoted correctly, except he did not use the word skeleton as he should have done. The second is entirely wrong. I did ask him this question. Tricky, did you not promise to come down to my office with the balance of that $5,000? And he replied, yes. I did inveigle Tricky into Massachusetts, for I wanted him to commit that crime in that state. By agreement, I was in Attleboro, and waiting to hear from Tricky. He telephoned to me from Boston that he would be in Attleboro on the three o'clock train, and he kept his engagement. I met him in front of the Park Hotel. The message was received by the proprietor of the Park Hotel, and he has a record of it. In Mr. Tricky's published account of this matter, he says that he has eight affidavits of parties to the effect that the alleged evidence was true and that they were sworn to before me as a notary in Providence. If he has, why don't they show them? I defy any man to produce such affidavits. On Monday night, after the Globe published its story, I was in Fall River and started for home. I expected that there would be trouble, and so Captains Desmond and Harrington went up on a late train to get behind the curtain and watched the fun which was sure to come. I left on an afternoon train by way of Mansfield. Mr. Carberry, a Globe reporter, followed me on the train and harassed me until forbearance ceased to be a virtue. 
Arriving in Providence, I was met by about four newspaper men, including Charlie Kirby and Mr. Tricky. They surrounded me at the entrance to the station and demanded an audience. I eluded them and was on my way home when they again caught sight of me, and when near engine company number four, matters almost came to a crisis. Mr. Tricky had his hand thrust into his pocket as if to draw a pistol, and he wore on his face the most aggravated look of desperation that it has ever been my misfortune to behold. I felt that he was in a state of mind which would lead him to do something rash. I feared he might attempt to take my life. I was not armed at the time, but I determined to make a bold stand, and so I told him that if he made a move I would kill him on the spot. Before leaving Fall River I had telephoned to my wife that I would arrive home at a certain hour, and she had already made preparations for receiving me. Hardly had I made this threat to Mr. Tricky than one of my men from the office rushed up and handed me a pistol. With this I ordered Mr. Kirby to stand aside, and told Mr. Tricky that if he wanted to speak with me, to proceed to my house where I would hear what he had to say. Before moving from his tracks, he said, "'McHenry, I ought to kill you instantly.' I learned afterwards that he had made the statement in Boston that there would be a funeral in Providence if he ever laid eyes on me. In his published statement before referred to, he says that he was instructed before leaving Boston to treat me with the utmost consideration. You can judge for yourself whether he did or not. I believe that he had been instructed to shoot me on the spot, and he would have done so had he the courage. We removed toward the house, and he marched in front. We entered, and left Kirby on the outside. We had a more rational talk about the publication and authenticity of the story, and he finally withdrew. As he backed down the steps, I told him I would shoot him dead in his tracks if he ever entered my house again. The next time I saw Tricky was on Broadway, New York, after he had left Boston. I was sent to this city to shadow and watch his movements, and I had kept track of him all the time, up to the meeting of the grand jury. At the session of that body he was indicted on six counts. In the preparation and attempt at service of these warrants, there was some queer work, and I know that Tricky would have been arrested had he not received a tip and skipped to Canada. He was in Boston when the warrants were issued, and had been for three days. I had him located, and was at the Attorney General's office to get instructions as to how to proceed. He gave me a sealed letter of instructions to the clerk of the district court in Taunton, and this I delivered in person. Instead of making out the warrant according to his orders, the clerk made them out to the Sheriff Constable, etc., of Bristol County. I did not know this at the time. There was in the room at the time the warrants were made out, State Officer Seaver, and he demanded that the clerk deliver the warrants to him for service. To this I most strenuously objected, and then there was a clash as to who was entitled to possession of the papers. I told Mr. Seaver that I was sorry to quarrel with a man whom I had always looked upon as a friend, but that I had been into this transaction from the start, and I proposed to stay in it until the finish. Without more ado, I laid my hands on the warrants and took them to Deputy Sheriff Brown of Attleborough, who in turn delivered them into the hands of the Boston police. At police headquarters in Boston, it was soon learned that the warrants were defective, inasmuch as they were made out in such a manner as not to be serviceable in any county except Bristol County. 
they had to be returned to the district court in Taunton and rectified. This necessitated a delay of about twenty-eight hours, and gave somebody an opportunity to get Tricky out of the state. That is why he was not arrested. Mr. Seaver was especially desirous that I allow him to make the arrest of Mr. Tricky, but to this, as I said before, I successfully objected. There were some very strange things done in connection with these warrants, and if you doubt what I have said, I refer you to the records of the Boston police on the 15th of last October. This, briefly, is my connection with the Tricky McHenry affair. In closing the interview, I asked Mr. McHenry how many times Mr. Tricky visited his office in Providence during the carrying out of his work, and to this he replied, twelve. My wife, said Mr. McHenry, did a great deal of work in this case, and was of much service to the Fall River Police. She was, I believe, the only woman who could and did succeed in getting the confidence of Bridget Sullivan. She was also of much assistance as a shadow, and was the famous veiled lady who was so mystifying to the newspaper men. She shadowed Tricky to Boston time and again, and on each occasion found that he went to the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Mr. Tricky always, after leaving my office, went to this place before he went to the office of the Globe. Such is the statement of McHenry, and it is but fair to say that the Fall River Police admit that Captain Harrington was sent to Providence several times to overhear the conversation between Tricky and McHenry, and that Captain Desmond went one or more times. The police also admit that Mr. Tricky was indicted for tampering with a government witness. There is, however, another side to this case, and that is the explanation made by Mr. Tricky of his conduct. It is conceded that he was one of the ablest and at the same time most brilliant man in his profession in the state, and there is no attempt made here to reflect discredit upon his methods or to question his honesty of purpose. Thus, it is justice to him in giving his version of the affair. Before his departure from Boston and after the Globe had published its big story, he made a written statement of connection with it, telling plainly of every move he made and all the talk he had had with McHenry before and after the purchase of the story. This written statement was delivered into the hands of Superintendent John Cornish of the Pinkerton Detective Agency and served as a basis for the extended investigation which the Pinkertons carried on for months in Fall River, Providence, New York, and Boston, with the intention of sifting the entire matter to its foundation. Mr. Tricky alleged, and his friends believe him, that McHenry was responsible for the injustice done, the Boston Globe, and that the detective, actuated by motives of personal gain and revenge, not only sacrificed Mr. Tricky and the Globe, but deliberately misled the Fall River Police, and secured their sanction and cooperation in the deal. He starts out by saying that he was in Providence the early part of September, on the lookout for the lawyer story, and that he saw McHenry on the street that the detective called him across, and the two men entered into conversation, during which McHenry said that he had a good story to sell. Well, Max, said Tricky, the Globe will pay as much for it as any other paper. Yes, said the detective, but it's worth a great deal more to somebody else. Who? asked Tricky. The defence, replied McHenry. Then Tricky was given to understand that he could have the entire evidence in the Borden case for twelve hundred dollars he says that mchenry gave him to understand that the matter would be sold only for the use of the defence and not for publication 
Tricky didn't care anything about the defence. All he wanted was a story for his paper, and with a view of getting it, he humoured McHenry by agreeing to call upon Colonel Adams and ask him if he wanted to hire a good detective, one who could get at all the state's evidence against Miss Borden. Tricky did call upon Colonel Adams and had a conversation about this matter, with the result, according to Tricky's statement, that the lawyer didn't have any use for a detective and didn't care anything about investing his client's money in the purchase of the Commonwealth's case. In other words, Colonel Adams refused to have anything to do with the proposed deal. But the reporter, knowing that his chances of securing the stuff for publication would be materially lessened if he made known the result of his visit, concluded to act the part of an agent for the defence and represent to McHenry that Colonel Adams did in reality desire to buy the story. With this conclusion in mind, he again visited the detective and reported, but wrongfully, as he says, that the Colonel would buy if the price was lowered. McHenry then agreed to sell for $1,000 and divide the money with Tricky. This was the reporter's opportunity. He knew that the Globe would give $500, and that sum he intended to pay over to the detective, representing that it came from Colonel Adams, and that he had kept the other $500 as his share, according to agreement. It might be said here that if any such deal as this was made, the supporters of Mr. Tricky have failed to find a witness who overheard the bargain, while on the other hand the police deny that such a conversation ever took place, and claim that Captain Harrington and others were in a position to hear all that was said upon the subject by Mr. Tricky and the detective. But this chapter is not an argument either for or against Mr. Tricky. His declaration goes on to say that after the 15th of September or thereabout, he made numberless visits to the detective, and in this particular he agrees with the police version of the affair. He admits receiving the skeleton story first, and later the names of the alleged witnesses, and that he did play the part of an agent for the defence prompted purely by a desire to get the story for publication. The fact that he hastened to print the story without further attempt to verify it is due to two causes. First, he feared that McHenry would sell it to the Boston Herald. Second, that he had given a Fall River police officer, one whose name does not appear in this chapter, the sum of $100 for a list of the witnesses in the case, and they agreed with the names furnished by McHenry in the latter part of the transaction. The fact that it did agree convinced him that the story was all right, and he did not want to take the chances of McHenry selling out to the Herald, so the agreement about the 24 hours' notice was violated. The writer has been assured by the police that if Mr. Tricky had given the 24 hours' notice before publication, the Boston Globe would have been spared the trouble of printing the fake, in justice to the Boston Globe, it must be said that its editors made the most humble and abject apology for the wrong done Miss Borden by the publication of the thirteen columns of lies, which Detective McHenry had sold to Mr. Tricky. The apology was made as prominent as the story had been, and the Globe's position, although not an enviable one, appeared to be as graceful as the circumstances would admit. It has been stated by persons who are in a position to know whereof they speak, that not only Mr. Tricky, but others, were indicted for their apparent connection with this affair. End of chapter 21